0: All right, take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 13. We will be our text this morning. I kind of have a bucket list of uh, places that I'd like to go in the next couple of years and one of those places is South Dakota as an outdoor enthusiast it's home to Badlands National Park, uh, Black Hills uh, National Forest and Falls Park uh, but it's also home to, uh, to this, it's Mount Rushmore this is when we think of uh, South Dakota so it comes to mind. Of course you've got Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt and, and Lincoln. Uh, hey, here's a pop quiz. If we were to make a Rushmore of billionaires, who would be on it? The fourth richest man in the world is Warren Buffett. 86-year-old man is worth 77 billion dollars. I've never bought anything from Zara, but his founder, uh, Amenico Ortega, is worth $82.6 billion. He could give every person in Canada, every man, woman, and child, $2,322, and he would still have plenty of money left over. Oh, 22 cents. Don't forget that, too. Co-founder of Microsoft, still owns 2% of the company, Bill Gates. He's worth $85 billion. Any guess at who is the richest man in the world? Yep, Amazon, Jeff Bezos. Next time you order and get something in fast shipping, you can thank this guy whose net worth is 85.2 billion. And part of that is because he recently just purchased Whole Foods. Did you know that the 30th wealthiest people in the world control 1.23 trillion dollars, which is more than the gross domestic product of Spain, Turkey, and Mexico combined? blows your mind but when you consider the Mount Rushmore of of billionaires most of us probably think wow it must be nice but did you know that you're closer to being a billionaire than you think you are Uh, did you know that if you make thirty four thousand dollars a year you are part of an economic elite class in fact you are part of the top one percent of the wealthiest of the wealthy in the world humanity seven billion people Even if you make $10,000 a year, you're wealthier than 84% of the rest of the world's population. If you make $50,000 a year, you are richer than 99% of the world's population. So you are closer to being a billionaire than most people in the rest of the world. To illustrate that, this is the picture I put up there. The only thing that's missing is the Monopoly monocle uh, to put up there. So take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 13. Now, last week, you're probably wondering, what and what does this have to do with anything? Last week, we started a new conversation, an eight-week conversation around enough. We're exploring um, the congested and excess-filled culture that we live in, examining the common things that fill up our lives. Last week, we looked at how much stuff we have and how stuff fills our lives. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the things that create congestion and this excessiveness in our lives, things like work and busyness and content. And ultimately, we're going to be asking this question this whole time, is there another way? Is there a better way? Does Christ not desire for us a life of simplicity, a life of sufficiency, a life of contentment, a life of enough? So this morning's conversation is going to be no different. So a little bit of warning before we jump into the text. If we look at Scripture through the eyes of entitled and wealthy Americans, we will never truly engage the journey and invitation of Christ. But if we begin to strip away the layers by which we look at Scripture— through the lens of Americans, through being a part of the wealthiest country in the world, and begin to see the invitation of Jesus, the call and way of Jesus, we can begin to see how God is inviting us into a life of sufficiency, into a life of enough. It's a difficult text, but let's take a look at it. Luke chapter, 13, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Here we go. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me to be judge or arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So let's get this straight. Jesus is in the middle of teaching. And this guy interrupts Jesus so that Jesus would somehow handle some sort of family dispute to him. And when you read this text, you can't help but feel like this guy is reading this as if he's a child. Mommy and daddy didn't give me what I thought. I should get, so can you try to make this decision between the two of us? And I love how Jesus responds to him. But the fact is that the law of Moses dictated that this man didn't get what he thought he deserved. Deuteronomy 21, 17 says that the eldest of the family would get twice as much of the inheritance as his younger brother. And so he's asking Jesus as a rabbi to be an a, uh, arbitrator between them. And I love how Jesus responds to him. Man, I ain't your judge. <laughs> and then he takes this into a really difficult conversation. He looks at the crowd and says, beware, be on your guard. In other words, hey, heads up, beware, keep your head on a swivel. Be on your guard for what? Be on your guard against greed on the abundance of possessions. So there's three key words there that really stick out to us. The first is the Greek word uh, for greed. It literally means numerically wanting more. Proverbs 15, 27 says that the greedy will bring ruin to their household. Proverbs 28, 25 says that the greedy will store up conflict. What is greed? Greed is when you want more and more, no matter what it takes for you to get it. So a biblical example. David was a great king. He was a great warrior. He had a beautiful wife, but that wasn't enough. What did he want? He wanted Uriah's wife. And he was willing to do whatever it took to get her. In fact, he even got the woman pregnant and then offed her husband. That's greed. The second word that's highlighted here is uh, abundance which literally means to exceed, to have leftovers, to overflow. So I want you to imagine that you have a cup and In your cup, you want to pour the most delicious juice in this world. To me, that's naked juice. Naked juice is the nectar of the gods. It's absolutely phenomenal. So imagine that you have a cup and it's abundance isn't that you just pour and fill your cup up. Abundance is that you keep pouring so that your cup overflows. It spills over into the ground. That's abundance. The third word is possessions. Now we encountered this last week as we talked about this word uh, that means mammon. Jesus is encountering this text here and he's saying, you're trying to focus your life on this possessions, on this stuff. And so Jesus gives a warning against these three things. We're learning what this, this text is going to be all about. And, and to prove this point, Jesus shares a parable. In verse 16, he says, And he told them this parable, The ground of a certain rich man yields an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store the surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. So Jesus always tells these simple and profound stories. He says, there's a farmer. Now that's an easy way for us to begin to gain what's going on. He says, there's a farmer that has a fantastic crop. In fact, he has more grain than he knows what to do with. And so he thinks to himself, what am I going to do with this grain? I'll just tear down my small barns and I'll build these bigger barns to store all this stuff in. Is it just me or does the farmer not seem all that wicked? He doesn't gain his wealth by taking advantage of someone else. So where is this parable going? He's not portrayed as particularly greedy. Instead, he's he's thinking that he's surprised by this good fortune of his crop. So what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this story? For one, did you notice the farmer's consistent focus throughout the conversation on himself? Here's his language. My crop, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. His first line in the story, I will say to myself reflexive pronoun means that he's focusing in on his self, his soul, his life. It's all about him. His flaw is the fact that he can only think of himself. What will benefit himself? What will take care of himself for the future? Jesus said, be on your guard against all sorts of greed. But then Jesus also warns with another word, abundance. And this parable clearly lays out what abundance looks like. He says, this man has so much crop that the only thing he can think to do is to tear down his barns and build bigger ones so that he'll have this surplus of grain stored away. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has touched on this issue. In fact, 16 out of 38 parables are about abundance and greed. Do you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? It tells the story of this rich man that throws these lavish parties. And outside of his home is this poor man named Lazarus who all he wanted to do was fill his stomach with the food that's in this man's trash. So here is the farmer who's storing away with himself. He's eating and drinking in his abundance, but he thinks not of anyone else. He thinks how he can store it for himself and has no regard for his neighbor. And the final mistake of this man is that he has this sense of false security. He thinks to himself, now that I've gained all these things, now I can kick back and relax. He says, "So you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. See, on the surface level of this parable, I would say that every red-blooded American is asking this question. What's wrong with this? This guy earned every penny of his secure retirement, so what's wrong with this? And I'm going to ask a very bold question. Is being an American equal to being a people of abundance and greed and false security? I'm not trying to be a a zealous prophet here. I'm not trying to shake my finger at any of you without first looking at myself. I'm a a person of economic privilege, but I, I think As a culture and economic society of Americans, it's difficult for us to take Jesus' words seriously. That's why we do the same thing we did with last week's text, where we over-spiritualize it, we over-contextualize it, to say that Jesus is specifically speaking to this one particular man. But sometimes in order for us to understand the full impact of Jesus' words, we have to understand the filter by which we see Jesus' words. And we see it as Americans of economic status. Uh, From time to time, social media pops up uh, fun articles. Um, One I saw recently was U.S. US states described by one picture. These are hilarious. I want to share some of them with you. Uh, The first here is Kentucky. The second is uh, West Virginia. Nice. The next one is New Jersey. Florida beautiful. <laughs> Wisconsin. And then this last one's going to bite. This is North Carolina. To represent that North Carolina is 42nd in teacher pay and school system. The, the article is absolutely hilarious, uh, but it does raise the question, how, how do, would you describe America? You see, it's human nature to see ourselves a good way as speaking, And typically, we think that the way that we see ourselves, others also see us. And oftentimes, we're shocked to see that people don't always see us in the same way. In fact, there was a Pew Research study that was done recently that polled internationals of their perspective of Americans. And here's what they came away with. Ask a foreigner to describe the archetypal American, and you'd most likely hear a non-too-flattering depiction of Americans as materialistic, arrogant, wasteful, and well-known for being overtly consumer society. I think most Americans would respond to that with, who do you think you are? (laughs) Where do you get off describing us that way? And while it's difficult to describe a group of people you don't necessarily live among, when you hear others talk about our culture, we almost do have to take a step back and say, well, what would cause anyone to think of us in such a way? So, I think the first clue that Americans can be greedy and abundant and live in false security, I think it can be found in American wallets. To give an honest assessment of American uh, wallets, I I, I did a little research into how Americans spend their money. And there's some really finite takeaways. The number one thing is that Americans spend more money than they actually earn. The average uh, household has $16,425 of credit card debt. And it's really a lot. It's it's fine to hard the causation around this when the average American spends $10,000 a year on entertainment and clothing alone. The average American individual will spend $20 a week on coffee or soft drinks. That adds up to $1,092 annually we spend on pumpkin spice lattes. Here's a fun fact, Americans spend $96 billion a year on beer and the average American spent 1% of their income this last year on alcohol. This one made me chuckle. Uh, $16.8 billion was spent on Easter last year. And you might be thinking, oh, people gave to the church in Easter. No, like this had everything to do with buying pastel clothes, buying chocolates, getting those little chocolate bunnies. $2.3 billion was spent last year on tattoos, but get this, $66 million were spent on tattoo removal last year. <laughs> billion was spent on sporting events last year. The average NFL ticket is $315. And I'm going to say this last one. I'm just going to leave it right there and let it stand for themselves. Last year, (laughs) this makes me laugh every time. Last year, $310 million was spent on Halloween, Um, and a good portion of that was animal Halloween costumes, because Little Muffin needs that $25 Yoda costume that he's gonna wear for three hours, right? So the 4th of July, I would say, is a a microcosm of America, right? And so you look at the 4th of July spending habits. Americans spent $5 million on US flags last year. Three quarters of those flags came from China. Um, Americans fire up the grill, spending $388 million on hamburger patties, 389 million on barbecue chicken, 133 on buns, and 37 million on ketchup, because nobody really likes mustard, of course. On the 4th of July, 568 million was spent on beer on the 4th of July alone last year. And we haven't even got to talking about fireworks. 800 million was spent on fireworks in 2016. So this is a microcosm of American culture. So the question we ask is, what does it matter? What does it matter? What does it matter that we spend this much on this and save this much on that? Who are we hurting? The difficult question is, so what? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most people would think, why not? Why can't I use my resources for what I want? Why can't I consume what I want, when I want it, no matter if others are in need? And most Americans would be right. It is a privilege of being an American to do whatever you want to do with your wallet. I'm just stating that our wallet defines us. There was a wise person who once said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What was his name? Jesus of Nazareth. As one author put it, you lose a wallet or your keys or something like that and you notice in a second. But your life can go missing and we don't even know it. So I think we as Americans can connect to this parable in ways more than we want to admit. Uh, When I was a kid, my brothers and I, uh, our favorite game to play was King of the Hill, not to be confused with Mike Judge's cartoon about uh, family in Texas. Uh, King of the Hill is a really simple game. Uh, You find a plot of land with a rise in it, a hill if you will, and said person stands on top of the hill, while others try to mount the hill, pushing said person off, and if you push the person off, you are either now the king or the queen of the hill. If that person remains, they are the king or the queen of the hill. It's easy. It's simple until you break an arm, jam a finger, and obtain a flesh wound in some sort of way. I think if there's a way to describe the economic culture we live in, it might be king of the hill. You see, the second clue of our deep connection to this parable is we live in a world of me over you. And it's not just that we live in a me-first culture, but it's our mindset at the expense of others. If our wallet is an indicator of our treasure and our love, then let's go to it. What we consume matters. The way that we earn and spend our money matters. What we give to others matters. And we're not just talking about the gifts we give to people we love, but the way we spend our money in helping others matters. The average American household contributes $1,300 to a nonprofit organization a year. The problem with abundance and overflow is that it blinds us from others. It replaces the natural inclination born and bred within us from a God who loves others to begin to forget about others. Because we think to ourselves, I worked hard for this. I can't help that other people made bad choices. Why can't I enjoy this a little? As one author put it, light of the great command to love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, it's easy to see why most of societal norms are backwards consumption of far more than is needed by many while others barely survive or do not survive at all. The widespread preferential treatment of people who exhibit certain physical qualities or social status, an economic system based on the callous exploitation of animals, natural resources, and the beauty and utility of creation. Yet we are impervious. We are desensitized. We don't get it. The problem with abundance is that it blinds us from others. It causes us to never see what is truly enough because we're always worried about getting what's more. It blurs the lines between loving others and the way that we love ourselves. And I think just like this man, we can connect with this parable because we live in a sense of false security. Because when we earn our money, when we spend our money, we are depending on ourselves for all that we need. And I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with savings because experts say you should have at least six months of your income saved away for emergencies. But also we have our retirements and we save away for our next car and our next bigger house and our nicer vacation and our future endeavors. And we have no idea what the future will hold, and so we put money away to secure ourselves. But as author and theologian Frederick Buchner penned it best, he said, The trouble with being rich is that... Since you solve everything with your checkbook, virtually all the practical problems that bedevil ordinary people, you are left to your leisure with nothing but great human problems to contend with. How to be happy. How to love and be loved. How to find meaning and purpose in life. In desperation, the rich are continually tempted to believe that they can solve these problems with their checkbook too. Which is presumably why Jesus led to say to a rich wise man one day, Heaven is about as easy for a Cadillac to get through a revolving door. Is there anything wrong with us having savings accounts and 401k? That's not what I'm saying at all. But somewhere along the way, we have to ask ourselves, how much faith are we putting in our financial security? And how much faith are we putting in God? The prosperity gospel would tell you That God gave you all that money, all those stocks and investments for your security. And yet as we wrestle with this text, as Jesus tells this parable, it causes us to ask a lot of difficult questions. And what tends to happen is we over-spiritualize this text. We over-contextualize it. We push it to the side. That's why when we hear pastors preach on texts like this, we either get really angry, we really ignore it, and our culture is, is telling us a different thing. The allure of money is that it creates the illusion of independence, but what we don't realize is we are replacing God in our life with ourselves as God. Because we earned the paycheck, we made the financial decisions, we swiped the card, we provide for our needs. And abundance creates a sense of worth and power. Abundance drives what I call practical atheism. Practical atheism is, I believe there is a God, sure, but every decision in my life is going to be driven by me as a God. Jesus said in Luke 9.25, one can gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. And the challenging thing about talking about money, which is always fun to talk about the church, right? is that the Bible talks about it a lot. I want you to listen to these stats. The Bible talks about money over 2,172 times. Compare that to the Bible talks about believing 273 times. Talks about praying 371 times. Talks about love 714 times. 2,172 times to all these other things we talk about more. Jesus spoke about money, 16 out of 38 parables. One out of seven verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are about money. That means that Jesus talked about money 25% of the time he spoke. And the parable isn't over yet. It says in verse 20, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how we will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Remember we talked about last week that we could have the response of Egyptians where we line our tombs with everything we've ever earned. God says to this farmer in this parable, What good is all this you have kept for yourself? Others are going to now receive it. God says, you fool. Did you know that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, don't call anybody a fool? (laughs) So it tells us something about what Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable. The echoes of Solomon, Ecclesiastes 2, 10, and 11. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward of my toil. Yet I surveyed all that my hands had done and all that I had toiled to achieve, and everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And then Jesus gives us like a solid by ending the parable by saying this like ultimate mic drop. This is how it will be when you store up things for yourself and are not rich towards God. I don't know about you, but I have a really hard time doing interpretation gymnastics when it comes to that verse. Because Jesus doesn't say to us, this is how it might be. Maybe for some of you, others not so much. He says, this is how it will be when you store up things for yourself and are not rich towards God. Do you wonder like what the look on that guy's face is that started this whole parable? Like, Jesus, can you be arbitrated between me and my brother? He like, probably the whole time was like making that back slow away type of thing what do we do with this text? Because this is difficult. As I was looking over this last night, I was thinking, ugh, what do we do with this? What is our response to this text? Typically what really happens is we either get really embarrassed, we get really ticked off, or we feel really guilty about it. Sorry, there's three things. Because the thing is, and I don't know about you, but I deal with this in my life. I would rather have the safe, the safe Jesus, the Jesus that like points out all the flaws in everybody else, but not the ones in my life. Can I just tell you, Jesus did a very rare thing in this text. Despite what Bible beating Christians would lead us to believe, Jesus never listed a laundry list of sins. But Jesus just warned us against three things in this text that tells us what God knows about our life and money. So what should we do with this text? What does Jesus want us to do? Jesus said in verse 21, This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. What does that mean to be rich towards God? Don't worry, the answer to this is not me saying you need to give to the church. That's not the answer. Jesus tells us in Matthew six nineteen through 21, do not store up treasures for yourself. Where moth and rust... Destroy where vermins destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus didn't say give to the church. I'm not saying give to the church and that's what you need to do with your wealth. Jesus says in verse 33, But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. How do we do that? How are we rich towards God and less rich towards self? I think we live a life by what Jesus is warning us here. Be on your guard against greed. There is practically no way for us to love others in the way we love ourselves when we're constantly storing up for ourselves. There is no way for us to love others if we're constantly pouring over the abundance of our life back into our own life and not into the life of others. There is no possible way for us to seek God and seek our own kingdom. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus is inviting us to invest in the kingdom of God. To invest in this present and eternal kingdom. Jesus is inviting us to find a new way of living. And this new way of living shakes our economic system. Because Jesus is trying to take the way that we have turned the world upside down and he's trying to turn it right side up. He's inviting us to love God and love others in the way that we love ourselves. Proverbs eleven twenty eight promises that whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. <laughs> Is it possible for us to reset our outlook on the way that we earn and spend our money? Is it possible for us to allow God to redefine what is enough and what is abundance? Are we willing, with the fact that we cannot solve this in one sermon, but are we willing over the next week, eight weeks to journey together to discover exactly what Jesus is inviting us into? If our economic status has been reduced, or even if we're willing to maintain it, are we willing to measure the worth of our life not by our economic status but by our spiritual status, by the way that we seek first the kingdom? Our worth in God is not by what we have in our banking accounts. Our worth with God is what we bring to God with our lives and our hearts. And as the great Richard War put it, to God there is nothing I can prove and nothing I can protect. I am who I am, and that is enough for God.